What's up, what's up, what's up? Young and old in the house of God today. Good to be here? You got to be? Online people, you excited? Throw one of those smiley face things in there? Yeah. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Trent Shoemake, and I have the unbelievable privilege of being the lead pastor to this faith family that is McDonough Christian Church. And let me just, before we dive into everything, I just want to tell you, I'm so proud of you, church. I am proud to be your pastor. Our, our children's ministry, things are like, they're opening up classrooms and crazy stuff is happening down there. Things are great going on down there. We saw a bunch of men step up. My office has got three shovels with, I think, a lot of you guys' name on it. I can't really tell. Your handwriting's terrible. It just looks like a lot of squiggly lines, but man, I'm, I'm pumped about it. I'm fired up about it. Um, I, I believe God is on the move. And so uh, we, we've seen him do that over the course of the last few weeks, and I believe he's going to continue to do that. Today, we're going to be starting a, a brand new series. It's going to just be a, a quick two-week ones, and then we're going to kind of turn the corner and start preparing our hearts, minds, and souls for Easter, uh, but today we're going to start, and it's called Peaks and Valleys. Everybody say that, Peaks and Valleys. All right, Peaks and Valleys, this is where we're going to go, um, because the truth is, we all experience that in life. Peaks, highs, valleys, lows. Think about it. You've gone through some of those in your life, and so when we just like right off the bat, when we go, hey, we got peaks and valleys in life. We got high mountaintop moments, and we got kind of the valleys where it feels like it's rough. When I ask you to conjure up one or the other, which is it easier for you to come to mind on? Is it easier for you to think about the valleys or the mountaintops? Raise your hand if it's the valleys. All right, it's okay, you valley people. Like, you, be real. Like, come on, you're, it's okay. Uh, raise your hand if you're like, I'm a mountaintop person, man. It's like, I can just think back to the mountaintop moments, you know, the wedding, the night of the wedding, the, the kids being born. I can think about all those mountaintop moments, man. I can, those are just, I, I can just, I can still smell them, taste them, feel them. They're right there on the tip of my tongue. But for a lot of us, it's the valleys. It's the valleys that we've gone through in life that when we think about our life, sometimes it's easy to even let our lives become by the valleys that we went through, the hard times that we went through, and maybe even some of the valleys that we're still going to. And so I know as we get ready to dive into a series like this, I may be even talking to a room full of people who feel like they're in a valley. And so I'm not going to ask you necessarily to raise your hand on this one, but you're in one of three places. You're either feeling like, hey, I'm up on a mountaintop right now, or you're saying, hey, I'm coming downhill. <laughs> Or you're saying, hey, I'm, I feel like I'm in a valley. And you know where you're at today. And my prayer is that as we dive into the life of the prophet Elijah, we see the lessons that both the mountaintop moments and the valley moments can teach us. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and go uh, put a bookmark on it. Go to the book of 1 Kings. Y'all almost thought I was going to say Matthew. Go to the book of 1 Kings, verse 18. Or chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, that's where we're going to be. 1 Kings 18, we're going to be in the Old Testament. You, some of y'all didn't think, man, we hired this guy. He's been here three years. I don't even know if he knows where the Old Testament is at. No, you're getting your Old Testament today. We got I mean, at least 40 verses, so you're ready. You're going to get it. Um, if I'm going to talk to you about the Old Testament, one of the things I've got to do is I've got to take you on a little bit of a history lesson. So all you history buffs in the room, all you people who like maps, raise your hand if you like maps. Yeah. Wow, you... That, we like a lot of maps. Like that's, I'm impressed. All right, well, uh, speak no further. Uh, without further ado, here's a map. Pow! Map. Map. There's a map. Okay, so here's what's going on in the nation of Israel at this time. Now, in the nation of Israel, that's God's chosen people. Okay, so God's chosen people, they're, they're part of this group of folks, and God has sent them into this land. Now, what you see here, this green, and what you see here, this orange, that was kind of all of the land that they had had. 
they were this nation of Israel and they were what's called a theocracy, which means that God was the one who governed. God was the one who set the rules. God's the one who appointed the leaders. And that's how it ran. It was a theocracy, theo, God, theocracy. It was not a democracy. They didn't vote, raise their hands on stuff. God just appointed people and that's how things went. Now, God was like, hey, I'm cool being your king because it's a theocracy. And they said, you know what? We could really go for a new king. Like, can we have a king like all the other nations? And God's like, that's a really bum idea. But he did it anyway, because that's what they wanted. And so they get this king, his name's Saul. Uh, he goes good for a little while, and then he goes really bad. And after that, they get a king named David. The Bible talks about David as a man who's after God's own heart. And they talk about David as a, as a man who, who did a lot of things that were pleasing in the heart of God. We have um, David as a hero in our faith. After David, now David wasn't perfect. He made some really big mistakes. Um, he, and a lot of his life post-mistake was trying to fix a lot of those mistakes. The Bible still, when it summarizes David's life, though, talks about him as a man after God's own heart. From David, we get a guy named Solomon. Solomon, good for the most part. Really, kingdom blows up, expands. A lot of good things are happening during this time. Really becomes one of the most powerful, most influential people in the entire world. But in that power and in that influence, in that wisdom that he was given by God, he begins to take some of the sins that were in David and they begin to become more and more of his sins. He starts um, intermarrying. He's got wives, I mean, hundreds of wives and concubines, which I mean, one is enough. Amen, fellas? And I'm talking about wives, not concubines. Um, one is enough. And he had a lot. And what he began to do is it wasn't necessarily about the woman as much as it was about how it was brokering a deal and the woman was a part of the deal. So I, I would marry the queen of such and such if I knew I could get um, some stock exchange or some resources from the country that she's from. So I'll let her come in and be a part, be one of my queens, quote unquote, so that we can have an end with the people from where she's from. And so he starts intermarrying and starts bringing in all these ladies into his life from all these different places. And guess what they bring with them? Their baggage, AKA their idols and their gods. And the nation of Israel through the course of Solomon and a bunch of other bad kings who bring in more idols, the kingdom gets divided, okay? It ends up splitting in half. You have Israel as the northern kingdom, and then you have Judah as the southern kingdom. The story we're gonna read about and hear about today is from the prophet Elijah as he's a prophet to the southern kingdom and one of its kings, all right? So everybody tracking so far? I gave you your map, all right? So that's the, that's the context, that's the setting. It's been bad king after bad king after bad king. And I wanna tell, tell you that there's a principle in this, that men in the room pay attention to this, fathers in the room, parents in the room, pay attention to this and don't miss this. The sins that walk in the father will oftentimes run in the son. Without God's divine intervention and without repentance, the sins that we see run or the sins that we see walk in a father will begin to run in a son. And what's crazy to think about is this whole nation divided, I think could have been avoided had David not been on a balcony checking out a naked woman named Bathsheba as she took a bath. The sins that walk in a father without the repentance, without the divine intervention of God will run in the son. So what you do today does matter. So that's what's going on. Uh, the king that is on the scene at this point when we hit our story is a guy named Ahab. I wanna tell you a little bit about Ahab. Ahab is the son of Omri. Now this is the Bible's, you know, talking about him. It's kind of going through the history. Ahab's the son of Omri. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Keep on, keep on. 
he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So again, he, he, he took his father's sins, but he also married Jezebel. Now, anybody ever heard that name before? Anybody ever called your, your boss that before? Like, okay, bad idea. Everybody ever mumbled that about a woman in your life who just, she's all, you know, or you heard some super religious person, she's got the Jezebel spirit. You know, like we hear that, okay? This is where this is coming from. Okay, now again, she, she was wicked, she was evil, she did do, do many things that were displeasing in the sight of God. But what Ahab does is same thing that Solomon did. He said, I want to marry this girl. She's a Canaanite, she's, uh, she's, uh, she's the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians. That's from the Canaanite area, not non-Jewish here. So he's marrying outside of his people group, which in that day and age, that was frowned upon. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. So it was bad enough that he just brought in somebody else. He let her bring his gods into the nation that he was called to lead. And again, this is a theocracy, not a democracy. They don't get to choose what they do as far as the God we worship. It's God's territory. It's God's nations. And he brings her in. Let's keep going. Verse 32. And he set up an altar for Baal. He built her a nice house on the city. Like, again, he's saying, hey, okay, this is your God. Well, let me do some stuff. I'll, I'll, you know what? Baby, I'll build you. I will build you this altar to worship your God. She built him an altar. Uh, Ahab made uh, Asherah poles. So again, you, you're, we're gonna, I'm going to unpack these two idols that they have going on here. Uh, Ahab also made an Asherah pole, which are like, Ash, what, is, what are we talking about? Well, I'll get there, promise. And he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the other kings of Israel did before him. And I'm telling you, if you go back and you read through 1 Kings, that is saying a lot. And you don't want to be known for being this guy. Now, there's two particular idols. Idol worship is what's going on here. And what's going on in the idol worship is they had said, hey, we have this one true God. We're going to exchange the truth about this God. And then again, we're tracking back into that Romans verse that we were in when we went through the Solid Ground series. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship created things. And that's literally what they were worshiping. They were worshiping statues of gold. They were worshiping uh, clay figurines. They were worshiping all these gods that they brought in. Now, specifically, Baal, which sometimes you may hear people refer to him as Baal. Um, Baal was a god who was said to have had his mistress, which was Asherah. And they were essentially the gods of prosperity. They were the gods of the rain. They were the gods who would give you fertility. They were looked at as the gods who would essentially give you the prosperity, provision, and protection that you needed in life. And if you remember what we talked about God's original plan was, was that he would be the provider and protector. It's no coincidence that these gods who are finding their way into the nation of Israel are promising the exact same things that God says he will promise. It's exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping something that's created. So you have Ahab who's been positioned and appointed there to lead this nation in the worship of the one true God, not only does he just do a terrible job at that, he actually sends the nation in the actual opposite direction as setting up altars and temples and Asherah poles to all these other false gods. And this worship of Baal becomes the state-backed governmental religion for the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, See if you have anything in common with this or, or you know, see, sense anything in common with this from our own culture. While it was now the worship of Baal and Asherah and all these other gods, it became their state-ordained religion. What they also did was they would continue to give because it is a nation of Israelites. They would give nods to God, Yahweh, on specific holidays and festivals. Say, oh, well, hey, oh, well, it's, oh, 
Essentially, it's our Christmas, it's our Easter, it's our Thanksgiving. We'll give you a nod on these things, but we're gonna deny that you're the God who has any influence, power, or authority in our life because we want that to be given to us by Baal. The gods of the rain, the gods of the moon, the gods of the stars, the gods of the lightning, gods of fertility, gods of sex, gods of all, whatever. We want those to be able to provide, and bring the prosperity that we really want. So that's the scene in which God sends a real man, one with an actual spine to speak into Ahab's life. And so he sends this prophet Elijah into his life. And Elijah essentially shows up on the scene and says, hey, listen, you thought you found the God of rain. Here's the news. I serve the God who makes it rain. And for the next three years, it's not until I say it's going to, as I speak on the behalf of God, because I am a prophet. Now, if you're a king and you're worshiping the rain gods, when a man of God shows up and tells you it's not gonna rain, you probably wanna kill him. And so that's Ahab and Jezebel's MO. They wanna kill Elijah. And so God, and to protect Elijah's life, sends him out into the wilderness. He sends him out into what is, you go back and you read your Bible in verses, um, chapter 17, he sends him out into the wilderness, into this ravine. And he spends three years there in the wilderness, protected, but also lonely. Anybody lonely today? Here's one of the principles you need to understand about the mountaintop. The valley always precedes it. There's always gonna be a time where you feel like I am spending way too much time not getting to where I think I should be. See, we serve the type of God, and we're gonna find out this out in the story. We serve the type of God who will allow you to spend three years in isolation for one day of living out his promise. We serve a God who will say, I'm gonna send you out here to, so you develop trust, so you develop and, and trust me for your provision. I'm gonna break away everything that you think is important in your life so that I can build you up to be the man of God for a moment that's gonna change everything. And he does that in Elijah's life. It's a powerful, powerful moment. And he sends him in, and that's where we pick up our story in verses, verse 16. So if you're in chapter 18, go to verse 16. I'm about to throw this entire thing into the garbage and never use any of it again. How did you guys let me go that long without saying anything? All right, I'm just making some room because so now I can dance up here. Um, grab your Bible, 16. So, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab. This is why you should bring your Bible to church. So Obadiah went to Ahab and told him, Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to them, this is, is Ahab speaking to Elijah. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? All right, so let me track with what's going on here. So there was this prophet, Obadiah. Obadiah was actually a good guy. He was one of the prophets who is part of Ahab's. Again, Ahab is the wicked, messed up king. But again, he wants to continue to kind of give a nod to God from time to time. Yeah, I've got Asher poles. Yeah, we worship Baal for most things, but I want to keep some God on my side, right? I, like, you know, you know, if this doesn't work, we'll move to this one. We'll try this one on weekends. We'll try this one, you know, during the week. And so he has Obadiah in his court. Um, meanwhile, Obadiah was, the was, Bible says that he was a devout man of God. Jezebel wanted to kill all the prophets of God. We're gonna see in a second that she had a lot of prophets on her team. She had 400 on her team that were her prophets, ate her table. We're gonna get in that in a second. But Obadiah goes, hey, I'm gonna try to protect the prophets of God. And he ends up going hiding 50 in one cave, 50 in another cave. Remember, Elijah, during all this going down, he's out in the wilderness. 
And God is sending basically like Uber Eats in the form of ravens to bring him bread and milk. And sorry, vegans, not even on the menu. Like he just says, I'm going to give you bread. I'm going to give you milk. This is what he does while he's out there in the wilderness. Elijah's going through all that, essentially living on meat and carbs and water. And then God says, hey, it's time to go back. But Elijah knows he can't just go knock on the palace. Hey, I'm here. Because he knows, again, Ahab and Jezebel, they want him dead. So what he does, he goes and finds Obadiah. He says, Obadiah, I'm ready. Let's go talk to him. I'm about to make it rain, essentially. They bring him in, and this is where the story goes. And so Ahab, because Obadiah set it all up, Ahab and Elijah meet. Once they meet, Ahab's like, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Like, and he's like, okay, these last three years. And imagine, imagine if it didn't rain for three years in our society. The world would implode on itself. It would get even worse than it is now. Imagine three years with no rain there. It's very, very, very detrimental. If you're the king, uh, a mass turmoil is going on during this time. And that's what's happening in their society. And this king, we can look at this and go, how dumb. Like, dude, you didn't, Elijah's not the guy who did this. You did this. You did this through worshiping your, worshiping your idols. And we can hear a story like this about idols and go, oh, that's so dumb. Like, man, I don't, we don't worship idols. I don't carry around little gold figurines in my pockets. I, I don't, you know, bow down at certain times of the day. And I, I know there's not a rain God and I don't have to go outside. You know, today it's raining. Like that's not because, you know, somebody did a dance or, or, or rubbed a, a rabbit's foot the right way and made that happen. We don't believe in those kind of things. It's really easy to write them off. It's really easy to write them off because what was going on in their day and age was overt idolatry. It was obvious. You could literally walk through the town and go, there is an idol. There is an Asherah pole that's to this different God. In our day and age, it's different. It's more covert. It's more hidden. It's behind the scenes. I would define idolatry as this. An idol is an unauthorized noun, which again, if you don't know what that is, that's a noun. Uh, it's a person, place, or thing. An unauthorized noun, person, place, or thing, other than God that you look to for your needs to be met. Welcome back. Um, that's an idol, an authorized noun, person, place, thing, other than God that you look to for your needs to be met. Now, do you have idols? You don't have a pole in your backyard. You don't have a little gold figurine in your pocketbook. But is there something else other than God that you look to to have your needs met? Your need for comfort, your need for approval, your need to prosper, your pleasure needs. See, Elijah actually knows who's to blame and he knows it's not him and it's not the God he represents. In verse 18, he says this, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. Again, the sins that walk in the father run in the son. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Now, Verse 19, now summon the people from all over Israel to come and meet me on Mount Carmel. And so this is where we, if we're listening to the scene, this is where we hear the music start to play. It's like, dun, 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 like it's about to go down. Come and meet me on Mount Carmel. And when he says, summon the people from all over Israel, he's saying that whole orange part of the map, all of those people, meet me on Mount Carmel. We're going to all, we're going to big showdown. We're going to see whose God is real. Bring everybody, not just, you know, the prophets and everything else. Bring them all. We're going to be there on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal, 
these numbers are important. They're written on, in here for a reason. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So again, we've got 850 prophets, false prophets to false gods. And then the whole entire nation of Israel. Verse 20, so Ahab, he sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. This is, again, this is where the drums start to beat. This is where the, where the, where the war music begins to play. Uh, picture the scene in your mind. This is where the showdown is getting ready to happen. Verse 21. This is Elijah. And I got I, I to get you to set up the scene in your mind. Remember, you have the entire nation of Israel, and you have 850 false prophets. And then you have one man of God. One man of God against an entire nation who has turned his back on that God and 850 false prophets. And you have one man, which says that men are willing to be in the minority. Boys go with the flow. They stick with the crowd. They do whatever the crowd's doing. That, that followers of Christ are willing to be in the minority. But if you're willing to just say, hey, I'm, I just wanna do what everybody else is doing, you have to be careful. And so in this moment, he shows up and he speaks first, which I love. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two options, opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people reply, nothing. How crazy, look, I could ask a rhetorical question in a room this size. And there's not a whole nation and then 850 prophets in here. I could ask a rhetorical question in this room and at least one or two of you would be bold enough to actually say something out loud, right? Yeah, see? So Elijah steps on the scene, and again, he is the absolute minority and says, how long are you gonna keep wavering? How long are you going between this? Whole nation of Israel, 850 prophets, crickets. Again, you, you see in the story who seems like they're on their heels and who is standing firm on the foundation of what God did in a valley season. I love how the ESV actually translates this, this verse. I want you to see it. We're gonna lean into this a lot today. It says, and Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Limping back and forth between two different things. I don't have to go super detailed into the description, um, but if you try to walk a fence, fellas, you're in grave danger of getting hit in a place that's very unfun for a man to be hit in. If you try to be a fence sitter, it's gonna lead towards limping. It's gonna lead towards pain. You're gonna go a little bit this way and a little bit that way. And what Elijah shows up on the scene here, he's going, go one way or the other. He said, I'm sick of it and our God is sick of you pretending to be this opinion, pretending to be for God, and then when nobody else is looking or when everybody else is looking, pretending, pretending to be for this God. And you want this one to do these things for you and you want this one to do these things for you. Make up your mind. And the reason that he is so angry about this and the reason that God is angry about this, the reason that God let it not rain for three years about this is he knows that he created his people. We talked about this in the whole last series. He created people 
to magnify him and to glorify him to the onlooking world around to say, this is what God is like. And so when you're created to show the world, this is what God is like, and you're sleeping with temple prostitutes and you're sacrificing children, God is angered because that's not what he's like. And the reason he's angered is because we've left the Christian fish on our bumper sticker. We've continued to keep the bracelets on and the t-shirts on and put it in our Facebook bio. Meanwhile, we've done all these other things that say, this is not what our God is like. And so Elijah shows up on the scene and kind of says the same thing that I think he would say to us. It's going, pick a side. If money is your God, then beg, borrow, cheat, and steal. Do whatever you gotta do. Sacrifice the family. Like, you don't really need it. You probably will go a whole lot further, make a whole lot more money. If you don't have to pay for college, you don't gotta support a wife or a spouse, just go make as much of it as you can. Get the boat, get the car, get the thing, build the house, do it all. Run after money wholeheartedly. If it's really your God, go for it. Just quit calling yourself a Christian. If you just say you're a Christian and then you show with the way you actually steward what God has given you in a completely opposite way, remove that label and run full on into money as God. If you say that romance is God and my, my, just, my, my happiness in relationships is God, well then run full on into that. And the moment you start to get a little bit tired of that wife or that spouse, just go find another one. Who cares if it's your fourth, fifth, sixth divorce? As long as you're happy, run after that. Do what you've got to do. It doesn't matter what kind of kids are left in your wake. Do what you've got to do. If sex is God, let it really be God. Have as much of it as you want with whoever you want, whenever you want. Try the whole spectrum out. Try it all on for size. And you don't even have to say things like, oh man, I just have urges. Or it was just something on a screen. Or uh, God wired me this way. You don't have to say any of that anymore to try to justify it. You can just do it. But if that's what you're gonna do, stop labeling yourself a follower of Christ. Go all the way one way and take the label off or go all the way this way and stand for something that you actually say you believe in. He's saying the problem is, is that so many people we say, I want just enough of the world and just enough of God. And the problem is, is we have just enough of God to be miserable in the world, and then we have just enough of the world to be miserable in God. And God shows up through, Isaac, through the prophet Elijah and goes, pick one. Go all in one way or the other way. And I think he would even say that to us. And, and this is one of the things I've, I feel like God's been doing this for us as a church. Like, I think the days of cool church being what is cool is over. I, I think calling people to a high commitment to what it means to follow a God who in a high commitment gave his life for us on the cross is actually what people are after. And if some people kind of fall off to the side, well, I hate that. But the bar has got to be, it's not raising the bar. It's going, this is where it's always been, friend. And so for, for us as a church, this is where I would say, man, being a part of a church is a terrible hobby. Like if you want a good hobby, golf, take up model cars or trains or something. But church, I'm telling you friends, it will make a terrible hobby for your life. Absolutely terrible hobby. They're gonna keep asking you to serve. They're gonna ask you to give. They're gonna ask you to, to be a part of things. They're gonna ask you to get out of your comfort zone. That's a bad hobby. And you're gonna continue to kind of feel guilty that you don't do the things that they ask you to do. Go find a different hobby. But if you want to be a part of a family, I believe you can find that here. And again, 
This family that is bought by the blood of Christ, it's something that it's not like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to give you my heart in a couple little pieces. It's saying, I'm going to give you all of this. And so that's why I would invite you, friend, go all in, serve, give, invest, move from being just a consumer of what happens here and becoming a contributor, someone who actually is invested. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your time, your talent, your gift. Every single one of you are hardwired by God to, to make a difference here in this church body as a whole so that we can be the light of God to this, this, this broken and messed up city that needs to see that uh, a church with white people in it and black people in it and young people in it and old people in it can actually get along because they're united, not uniform, but united by a God who loves them and calls them to something greater. And that's, that's what my heart, like in my deep heart of hearts, I will sell out and commit my entire life to a goal that big and a dream that big because that's something worth dying for and something worth living for. So, so my heart, my heart is that you would know the same thing you've experienced to be true in, in some relationships in your life. If you've been a parent in this room, you've experienced this to be true, that the times when you were most committed as a parent were the times you got the most joy out of parenting. That the times, and maybe you had to look back at it, maybe it wasn't fun in the moment. It was like, I'm committed, so I'm bailing you out of jail. But you look back on and you see kind of what God's been doing in that kid's life and you go, it was worth it. And see, here's the thing about following Christ and this, this walk that is being a follower, joy, like that deep eternal joy that you're really looking for in life, deeper than happiness. The joy that you're looking for is a privilege of the committed. It is not a privilege. It is not, I'm telling you, the uncommitted, half-hearted, lackadaisical, it's hard to find. It'll come in wimps, come in moments, come in and it'll come and go. But the people say, I'm here and I'm here for the long haul you'll experience it. I'm here in my marriage. I'm here for the long haul. I'm here as a parent. I'm here for a long haul. I'm here in my singleness and I'll be here as long as God calls me to. And I'll get as much fruit off of this vine as I can. I'm here for this church. I'm, I'm here for the long haul. I'm here for the city. I'm not, I'm not trying to move to the north side of Atlanta. God put me here for a reason. I've got roots here for this of the season. I'm going to give my life to see the kingdom of God come here on earth in McDonough as it is in heaven. He says, go all the way in or go all the way out, but please stop limping back and forth. So he says that, and again, crickets. From there, he tells them to make a move. Verse 22. He says, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. He's calling out numbers. Again, he's trying to help them see what's going on. He says, go get two bulls, verse 23. Go get two bulls for us. Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, cut it into pieces, put it on the wood and don't set fire to it. And I'll prepare another bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. All right. So he's laying out the ground rules. Essentially, we're going to build two altars. We're going to dice up a bull. And then whichever one of your gods, whether it's your God or my God, whichever one of these that makes fire come down from heaven is going to be it. And that's what he says in verse 24. He says, then you call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord, which again, don't you just hear it? Like you call the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord. Like man, he just, he's got some fierceness in his spine in this moment. I love it. He says, then the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, if you're in their circle, you're just going, this guy is so dumb. We, the God of fire and lightning is on, like that's, we got him on our side and there's 450 of us. There's one of you. They're like, they're like, we got this, man. We're gonna get this fire from heaven. 
And all the people said, what you say is good. Again, they're, they're, they are minced for words in this whole altercation. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you, and call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. And here's where the story gets interesting. Look at verse 26, even more interesting. Verse 26. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. So we got about four or five hours rocking and rolling here. They're calling on Baal. Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. They shouted. But, shocker, there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. Now we get to my favorite part because um, my love language is sarcasm. At (laughs) At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he's in deep thought or he's busy or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping or or maybe maybe he needs to get a wake-up call. And as much as I like how the NIV translates it, I don't think it's super off. I I think they kind of made uh, certain passages of parts of this a little bit milquetoast. So I want to show you how the ESV puts it because I think it actually gets more to what the actual Hebrew language is after because Elijah was pulling no punches. At noon, Elijah mocked him saying, crying aloud for he is a God. Either he's musing, which is kind of like he's just daydreaming or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and he's got to be woken up. All right. So again, you got a picture, Elijah, this dude who's just living, you know, paleo diet out in the middle of nowhere, getting Uber Eats, Ravens. He's He's been out there, okay? And he's in this moment, big, long beard. He's probably halfway wasted away at this point. He's just coming in out of the wilderness. Meanwhile, got the whole nation of Israel and fat cat government church workers screaming, shouting, screaming at the top of their lungs. And you got Elijah sitting over there in a lawn chair with a sweet tea in his hand just going, yell a little bit louder, guys. He's probably, he's in the bathroom with the fan on and can't hear you. Like he's just letting them have it. I love this guy. It's, it's, it's silly. It's silly until we see ourselves in the story though. Elijah calls him out. And and the point that he's making here is this. He's going, okay, you thought you had a real God. So a real God, a real God, the, the God you created, you created in your image. So he's got all the things you've got. He can hear, he can daydream. He goes to the bathroom. He can fall asleep. The Bible tells us that our God never sleeps. His eyes are always, his, God's go, his eyes go to and fro looking over the entire world. Our God doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest. He doesn't forget about you. He, again, he's drawing this huge content. You create a God in your image, but I serve the God who we were created in his image. He's drawing all that in this, this, this parable, or not parable. He's drawing all that in as he's trash talking. I mean, there's no way around it. That's what this is. So he trash talks him a little bit right here. And then this is where it gets pretty gruesome. Go to verse 28, please. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears because that's what they did. They said, if God isn't giving me what we want, we we give God our blood. We want a God, this is a God we're willing to bleed for. We'll get into that in a second. As was their custom until their blood was shed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying. Again, so we're, we're all the way past the day now. Like we spent about eight hours, a full, full work day of them going bonkers, crazy, screaming and yelling. And it got to the point where that wasn't happening. Elijah kind of put the nail in the coffin and they start cutting themselves, slashing themselves. They're prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. So this is like, this is kind of the deadline. But there was no response. No one answered. And no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, I love this part. Come here to me. Chan, 
Hey, nation, lean in. You're about to see our God. You're about to see the God who can answer by fire. Lean in, come near to me. He says, they came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which again, on Mount Carmel, they had already had an altar for God, an altar for, for them. Again, before Jesus came on the scene, the nation of Israel would sacrifice animals because again, in God's way of dealing with sin, they would sacrifice the animal because God's way of dealing with sin was that blood had to be shed for the sin to be dealt with. And again, God's not gonna ask people to bleed for him, but God would say, hey, I want you to see how gruesome it feels when you take an animal, and most of the time it was a lamb, when you take this lamb and you sacrifice, and you see the blood pour out of it. And all of those sacrifices they had done for all those years was supposed to point towards the ultimate sacrifice of his son on the cross and his blood that was poured for the forgiveness of all mankind. And all of them was supposed to be multiplying things would all point to his son's ultimate sacrifice. And so in this moment, he goes back to the altar that was supposed to point towards the altar and the hill that Jesus would give his life on and he repairs it, brings reformation. So he repairs the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Let's keep going. So Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob. He's looking around, he's taking these stones. Everybody's counting these stones, they're seeing what's going on. They begin to put two and two together to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. That's why he spoke to Jacob, verse 32. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. Yeah, I don't necessarily have to explain that to you. Just, it's a big trench, big old trench. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and he laid it out on the wood. So he's doing all this. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood. Now, pause. How long had it been since this rained? Again, I, I may be reading a little bit too much into the story. I don't know where you just magically get four giant jars of water that's gonna become 12 giant jars of water, but God. So, and again, also I'm not a scientist. So, and I don't come from a scientist family, but I did play Pokemon as a kid. And I know that fire, fire beats, or water beats fire every time, Right? Like it just, it's pouring down rain. Like you wouldn't want to go out and buy wood from the gas station and go take it to your house to drive it. Like water beats fire. And Elijah's trying to show something here. He's pouring on the wood, verse 34. He says, do it again, <laughs> one more time. He said, and they did it again. And then do it a third time. And he ordered. So that's four giant pitchers. I mean, like this tall things, 12 total things poured all on this. Enough water has come down that it's even filled that whole entire giant trench that's around it. That's what he did. Verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. This is where power come from. He stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. Here's why. So these people will know that you are Lord that you, Lord, are God and that you, here's, the, here's why he wants them to know that he's God, because he's turning their hearts back again. Friend, if your heart is turned away from God, his whole purpose in bringing you here is not to make you feel angry, not to make you feel convicted. His whole point in making you, bringing you into an environment like this is so that your heart will begin to turn back to him again. Again, he's got, God's got the entire nation of Israel. A lot of times when we read the Old Testament, we want this angry guy who just blows things up. Again, he's got the whole nation on one mountain. Like if he really wanted to take him out, he could say, Elijah, psst go back down to the valley where those ravens were at. I'm about to blow this mountain up because these people are ridiculous. 
He doesn't do that because his heart is always for his children to turn, to turn their hearts back to him. Now, um, Chuck or Chris, one of you guys, you got your phone on you? you can you go to the uh, stopwatch app on your phone? Go to the stopwatch app. You got it? Okay. Go to the stopwatch app on your phone. And I want you to help me out here. What I want you to do is I want to time how long this prayer was. All right? So I'm, when I say the word Lord here in a second, I want you to start it. And then I'll just say amen because that's how we end prayers in America. Uh, when I say amen, you stop it. All right, Chris? Cool. Lord. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and you are turning their hearts back again. Amen. Where we're at. 19 seconds. All right. Compare and contrast, friends. We've got an entire day We got from breakfast to lunch, just kind of getting after it. Like, all right, man. I mean, imagine all these 850 guys just kind of marching around, like looking at their clock, like, man, what's not? Nothing's coming, man. Like, let's go a little hard. And they're sweating and they're running and everything else, singing and dancing, going back and forth, doing everything they can to get this God come. You got Elijah there just talking trash at him. And then from there, they start cutting themselves, making themselves bleed, screaming at the top of lungs. I would imagine guys are fainting at this point from dehydration, blood spewing out everywhere. And then we have a 19 second prayer from a man of God. We have the God who answers the 19 second prayer and fire falls from heaven. And what's what's powerful about this story is when you begin to see Jesus in it. See, I I don't know what idols you have in your life, the things that you've looked to for your pleasure, your prosperity, to provide the thing that you need for you. The the Bible um, speaks about this, not in as, as most specific terms, but there really are four root idols. There's the idol of comfort. There's the idol of control, there's an idol of approval, and there's an idol of power. And each of them play themselves out, whether it's through our kids, through our money, through our sex, through our relationships, through our thoughts, through what we eat, say, drink, all those things. They play themselves out in all of those things. But really, they're serving these four root idols of comfort, power, security, and control. And when you begin to think about these prophets, sometimes it's really easy for us to read these stories of the Bible and go, oh, I see who I am. I'm Elijah. That's me. That's me. That's me. That's who I am. Right? I mean, that's us. We always, again, if, if Marvel has taught us anything, be the hero in the story, right? Be the hero. You're not the hero. Jesus is always a hero. And what's crazy about the story is when it comes to the idols that we serve in our life, they're always gonna demand that you dance, that you sing, that you work, that you do all these things to earn their approval. Jesus comes on the scene and unlike any other major world religion, says, you don't have to work. You have to believe, you have to surrender. He's a God that all the other ones say, work, do this, make this happen, get this thing, do this thing, work, get this thing, climb this ladder, be this way. He shows up and his last words on the cross goes, it is finished, the work's over, it's done. You put your faith and your trust and your hope in me. You surrender. I'll give you a new life. I'll show you a way to live. I'll put my life in you and that'll be what gives you the power to be able to live that life. Where all the other gods say, mutilate your life, tear things apart, bleed for me. We have a God in Jesus that says, I will bleed for you. 
Every other God is going to demand that there are parts of your life that are ripped out. You're going to, okay, serve the God of money, but what's going to be ripped out? You're going to rip out some family. Serve the God of your own approval. You know what's going to be ripped out? Character. Because you're going to be a thousand different people in a thousand different environments. He comes on the scene and says, listen, stop wavering. Pick my side. I am the one true God. And we see what comes from here. See the, the fire fall in verse 38 has the prayers answered. Let's go to 38. It says, then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water and the trench. So big old fire. Verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate. That means they fell down on their faces. When you see God move, that's what you do. Fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now leave this up here. This is what's crazy about the story and how God just, from the moment that Elijah's parents decided what they were gonna name him, God all throughout the entire thing was preparing him for this moment here. Elijah's name, do you know what it means? The Lord, he is God. Literally, if you were to hear what they were saying right there, it sounds like this. Elah, Jah, Elah, Jah, Elah. Jah, this is the chant of now the whole nation of Israel. Now, if you're part of that 850 group of tribe of Israel, you hear the entire nation of Israel chanting, Elah, Jah, Elah, Jah. Like you just peed your pants a little bit. Like you're terrified and they have reason. We're gonna see what happens to them in a second. But it's a crazy scene as they see fire fall from heaven. And they're reminded of who God really is. Let's go to verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down in the Kishon Valley, and he slaughtered them there. Now, this is not prescriptive. Like, this is not what we do to people who don't follow God. Um, but don't get any crazy ideas up your sleeve. And the reason we don't have to is because we have a God that we serve, that we love, who was slaughtered on a different mountain a mount called Golgotha, a mount called Calvary. And so because we have a God who was slaughtered on a mountain because of our sin, now we can take the words out of his mouth, words like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Don't, don't withhold good from someone who may be even doing bad to you. But we gotta understand how to put this, you know, how to swallow this a little bit because again, that is kind of a big deal. Every one of these prophets represented instruments of Satan. They were pulling his people away from him as the one true God. So God does in this moment something that I can't fully understand, but he does. And the story reminds us of this reality that there truly is one true God. And the mountaintop moments show us that he is who he really says he is. I love how James, the brother of Jesus, he talked about what was going on here in this moment. I think James wrote a lot of his story or a lot of his letter to the church in the New Testament with the prophet Isaiah in mind, verses uh, chapter five of James, verse 16, he said this. It says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Some of you are like, hey man, you talked about that like 19 second prayer. Like I prayed one of those 19 second prayers and nothing happened. Here's why something happened. Elijah had God's ear because God had Elijah's heart. The prayers of a righteous person are effective powerful. Verse 17, 
It says Elijah was a human being, even as we are. It's kind of James' way of going, you can do it too. There's, there's, there's less that he had than you have because you actually have God's written word to inspire and fully direct everything that you do. He, it says, it continues on there in back half of verse 17. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed in the heavens and gave rain and the earth produced its crops. It's powerful stuff. What I want you to see here is that there is a God who longs to meet your every single need. But when we limp back and forth between him and the gods we've created, it's hard to live this life that is called a follower of Christ. It's hard to follow when we're limping back and forth. I love what James said in James 4, 8. And I think, again, I think he wrote this with the story in mind. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. And the reason that he will come near to you is not that he's like way out there kind of waiting on you to you know, get your stuff together and saying, okay, well, now, you bet. now you're better. You cleaned yourself up. Let me come on back. No, he's been there the whole entire time. You don't feel it. You don't realize it. Idols are speaking. Idols are talking. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. I love the next part. Come near to God, come near to you. Wash your hands. You have residue from the idols that you've been carrying around. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. I don't know what, like if I asked you, what does purify your hearts mean? Not, not even necessarily what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that mean I have to do? Like, again, we're concrete people, like especially the guys in the room. Purify my heart. I mean, you're a guy and you start talking about your heart and your emotions. We're like, can you just tell me what pills I need to take? Can you just tell me what thing I need to say? Purify my heart. What are we after there, man? I think if you tried to explain it, you'd probably say some of the things like I've said in my past, like purify my hearts. That means go like at least a few weeks without doing something that I shouldn't do. Purify my heart means stop saying cuss words. Purify my heart means um, come to church more consistently. Purify my heart means um, no longer watch bad movies or shows. Purify my heart means start giving. And hear me. All those things are probably part of it. But all those things are still things that you're doing. The, the key, again, it goes back to surrender. Purify my heart is going, Jesus, you're back on the throne. My heart is, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the heart of a human person is an idol factory. So if I sit on the throne of my heart, I am the superintendent of an idol factory. Jesus says, will you get off the throne and it will go from being an idol factory one where you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the way you think, act, do, spend money, treat people, love your church, volunteer, give, all those things. By the way you do those will be done in a way that magnifies and glorifies me so that the world sees that there actually is a God who loves them and cares for them. Today I want to end as a band comes back out with a passage to a church that Jesus spoke. And he spoke this passage into this church through the apostle and one of his closest friends, John, to help us understand what the end was gonna be like. It's in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation chapter three. You can turn there, it's gonna be on the screen too. But I want you to see yourself in this, to see us in this. 
I'm going to invite you to, to even stand now in this moment as we hear this. You're going to hopefully see why in a second. But I want you to stand, just kind of honor and respect of God's word here. Before I read this, I want to pray for you, though. Father God, as we get ready to read these words, I pray that you'd bring conviction. I pray, Jesus, that, that you would allow us to, continue, to stop limping back and forth from the things of this world and, and, and get out of the things of this world and move into a place where, where we are running after you, where we are wholehearted after you, where we don't say, hey, I'm gonna lower the bar and make you in my image and think that this is the way it is, but we don't even say, hey, I wanna be a Christian anymore and look around at other Christians necessarily to figure that out, but we look to you, Jesus. We look to your word, Jesus. We see who you are, what you did, and we set you back as a standard of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So as I read these words, I pray that they would be a healing balm to broken hearts. That they would be a gentle turn out of sin, out of shame, out of fear, depression, anxiety, and that they would be a gentle turn into the hope, peace, and purpose that can only be found in you, in your name. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea that these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is Jesus' way of saying, hey, I've got the authority to say what I'm about to say to you. He says, I, I know your deeds. I see everything that happens, which can either be terrifying or freeing. I know that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one. Again, it's his way of saying the same thing that Elijah said. I, I go one way or the other. I wish you were one or the other. You're making the other worse by being neither. So, because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I, I don't know about you, but I don't want that to happen. I don't want God to spit us out of this city. I believe that you were put here, that we were put here for a purpose and for, for a big purpose says, you say I'm rich. And see if this doesn't stick home. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You can be the best dressed. You could have drove in in the nicest car. What Jesus says to those who are lukewarm is you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Which is no coincidence that when he showed up on the Sermon on the Mount, what we just got through going through, first words out of his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He hasn't changed his sermon. He said it at the beginning and he's saying it even at the end. So he says, okay, that's who you are. So my best advice to you, poor, wretched, blind, naked people, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You feel any, either of those today? No, that's a father doing that out of love. That's Jesus doing that out of love. It's not the hammer of God's wrath coming down on you. That's the pressure of God's grace pulling you out of whatever you're in. But be earnest and repent. And this is the reason I told you to stand up. 
Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. I had a few people after the first service point this out to me. I don't know if you're a Bible app person, uh, but it's no strange coincidence. I, believe it or not, I'm not influential to know the people at the Bible app and what's going on there. But the verse of the day for the Bible app uh, is actually that verse uh, right there. So um, when you open that up today, you can go back and get a quick little reminder. But what I'm, the reason I point you to that and the reason I have you standing right now is because I want you to know that he's knocking at the door. And, and he's standing at the door knocking, even at the door of the lukewarm. And maybe in this moment, I'm gonna ask you a question. I need you to be honest. If you're here and you'd be willing to say that you feel like you have been, whether it's the season of your life or this moment right now, you feel like you have been limping back and forth between the things of the world and the things of God. But just be willing to, to raise your hand and admit that so that I can pray for you, so we can pray for you. Father, I, I pray that they hear you knocking at their door. Father, I, I pray that from this moment forward that, that they feel your presence drawing them out of, of a limping and wavering faith and that they would be able to stand in full confidence against whatever may come, that they would bravely stand, even if they're in the minority, God, that they would stand knowing that you are there with them and they feel your presence, that they feel your love with them, that you would bind any enemy tactic and strategy that would seek to keep them away from the life that you've called them to in you, Jesus. In your name, amen. We're gonna sing this song called Run to the Father. It's my prayer that you stop limping and you start running. The reason I have you standing is so that you can sing a little bit as a way of going, hey, I'm, I'm coming to the door. I'm standing up. You, don't, you can't answer a door sitting down. Answering the door. And then what do you say he's gonna do once you answer the door? He said, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna sit down and we're gonna eat. So in a little bit opposite way of what we normally do, you take communion and then you stand up to sing. I'm gonna let you sing a little bit and then sit down. Talk with your savior, commune with him. Repent if you need to. Beg if you need to. Tell him how through his power, through his blood, you're gonna, with his help, not just turn down the idols in your life, but slaughter the idols in your life. And know today that he's with you. He's for you, not against you. And I pray you feel his presence here. Let's pray. Jesus, speak to us now, for we need you. In your name, amen.